0: Would you join me as we bow in prayer? Our Father, we have today reflected upon your grace, we've reflected upon the glory of heaven, we've reflected on the approval that Jesus Christ earned and gained and Possessed, and Lord, our hearts are overflowing as we marvel and revel in the greatness of who you are. Especially the more we know of ourselves, Lord, the more we we can't help but give you glory and praise, and thank you for the mercy and grace we receive in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would help us to understand more clearly Jesus and what He taught, and that we might indeed humbly sit at your feet this day. May your word instruct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One theologian made the, an observation regarding the overriding issue he felt like in the era in which we live. And he, this, he said that the crisis we face in this era of time is one regarding authority. Authority. How do we define authority? How am I going to use the word today, authority, in our uh, message this morning? I'm going to use it in this sense, as Bernard Ram defined it. It is the right or the power to command action or compliance. It is the right or power to expect obedience from those who are under the person who has authority. The trend in our day is a trend toward celebrating individual autonomy. We like to have our own authority. We like to be the person who's in control and in charge. And we oftentimes ask the question, or raise the question, who has the right or power to command action or to command compliance in your personal life? Who has the right Or the power to command action or compliance in your family's life, in your workplace, uh, in the moral and spiritual realm of life, anywhere in life. Who has that power and authority? Now these issues that we raise about authority are not new. Uh, Human history has recorded a number of struggles revolving around the issue of authority. And so it's not too surprising that we find, as we go back into the first century, in the time in which Jesus Christ was involved in his public ministry, the issue of authority was a significant one that was oftentimes a flashpoint. And in first century Judaism, there indeed was a crisis in authority. One of the most telling points of this crisis is found during the last weeks of Jesus' public ministry. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. I feel I've got a lot of mic here, so I don't feel like I'm overpowering everybody, so maybe you can take me down a notch. Is that correct? Okay, so if you could bring us down just a little bit, Robbie, I appreciate it. All right, if you want to find it in your pew Bible, we're going to be reading uh, eventually on page 1170. As we get there, we're going to find that uh, in this last week of Jesus' ministry, we've already noticed that He entered in Jerusalem. There was quite a stir and a ruckus going on, quite a celebration as He entered the city. And that was okay on one level, but for those who were in authority at the time, over the temple complex, things got really dicey when Jesus, in the, in the public arena of the temple, he caused a stir when he challenged the authority of those who had a who had authoriz- authorization and oversight over the temple complex, because when he was there, Jesus demanded that the money changers shut down their corrupt and their commercial enterprise. And this simmering controversy now over spiritual authority is about to erupt. The high priest, together with an assortment of other religious leaders there among the Jews, what we would call the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a word that described a group of 71 individuals who were made up of the Sadducees, some of those, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, they all grouped together as a ruling body, and they sensed that their power is now being threatened by this maverick prophet from Nazareth. And so when Jesus removed the money changers from the temple, he exposed the tip of an iceberg of corruption. Corruption at the highest levels of spiritual authority in first century Judaism. And now the questions are even more significant as we look at this text. Who gave Jesus the authorization to take this bold action in the temple? On what basis was Jesus permitted to disrupt the commercial activities conducted in the huge worship complex known as Herod's Temple? And on what basis did Jesus assert this supreme authority? Why should he have the legal, spiritual, and moral authority to command action and compliance and expect other people to obey his commands? Does Jesus have Spiritual and moral authority? Did He have it at that time? Does He have it now? Does He have authority over us as individuals, over our nation, over all the nations of the world? Well, I hope I've raised some helpful issues here for us to think about now as we look at the text in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. And when Jesus had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Him as He was teaching and said... By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which, if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, "Hmm, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say, from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I'd like to consider several issues here in this brief exchange regarding the issue of authority, Jesus' authority specifically. First thing I want us to note is there was a questioning a questioning of Jesus' authority. And the question was an inquiry of entrapment. Jesus was not intimidated by these spiritual leaders at all. He is standing there publicly, having already the day before uh, cleansed the temple, or a couple days earlier cleansed the temple, removing those he thought were involved in corrupt practices. And so he's standing there, and he's approached by what would have at the time must have been a very impressive group of, of people, wearing the finest of garments, uh, which would have indicated their high level of economic status and uh, their fact that these are men of great stature. They had titles of honor that they were given to them. They were always given accolades when people saw them. Here's this group of people, all those representing the spiritual leaders, asking questions, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? And by posing this question in this way, they are trying to discredit Jesus. They are trying to put him into a situation where he's going to fall off on one side or the other and find himself in some significant uh, um, uh, conflict and even greater yet, losing credibility. And so if Jesus answers the question raised to him, who gave you the authority, by claiming that it was from some human source, then the members of the Sanhedrin would have said, well, listen, we are the human uh, authority over the religious matters here pertaining to the nation of Israel. There is no greater authority than our group. If, on the other hand, he responded and said, well, the authority I received was from God, they would do what? They would have accused him of blasphemy. Now, it's interesting that the chief priests and religious leaders knew that Jesus, in looking at him, they knew that he lacked the customary educational credentials to be someone with a significant level of authority. He never received any of the formal rabbinical training that they had received. He had never had undergone supervised training as an apprentice under someone who would have been thought of as having a high title of honor among their um, organized religious practices. And in their view, Jesus was a self-appointed rabbi. And they believed he was not authorized to disrupt any kind of activities within the temple And for three years now, they have seen him as someone that they are strongly against. They saw him as a person who was challenging their authority. And they have been looking for a number of ways to finally destroy him, to get him off the scene, to get him out of their hair, to try to lessen the amount of controversy that he's raising for them as he begins to expose them more and more as to their level of corruption. From the perspective of these religious leaders, the confrontation that we're looking at now in this text is a critical, timely opportunity for them to once and for all catch Jesus in the making a false claim of power, to hold him now accountable for his attempts to usurp their power and the authority that they felt like they alone possessed. Now, before we move too much further here, we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we going to look at these religious leaders and say to them, well, clearly they're out of order, or are we going to say to ourselves, well, what would we have done? If you were the one in charge, if you were the one who had conducted all these things, if you had someone challenging you in some areas that you felt like really stepped on your toes, how do we never tend to react to that? If someone claimed to have supreme authority over you and commanded you to do something that you did not find pleasant, you didn't find it easy or desirable to do, or you no longer they told you no longer to do what you're currently doing, Wouldn't you look for some way to preserve your autonomy by somehow questioning their authority? Questioning is it proper and appropriate for them to do that? I remember years ago when I was driving locally in this area. You can go north on Hawkins Avenue over here in the corner. And they have a strange set of signs there. I was taking a right on red. And it says, right on red, school days... 9 to 12 or 3 to 4, some little clause on there giving you the time it's okay to take a right on red. No right on red, and then it has school days, that's what it said. And I remember taking a right on red, and soon after I saw flashing lights behind me. In a sheriff's car. Not Suffolk County Police, a sheriff's car. Pulled me over a, a block or two down the road. So he looked at all my information, registration, and the whole time I'm thinking, what are you doing? I didn't do anything wrong what is your problem? Questioning his authority to do that. Well, he explained that he said he took a right on red, and I was supposed to. I said, well, there's a sign there. Oh, yeah, sure. He didn't believe me. I didn't challenge him to go back and look at it, but I knew it was there. Anyway, I just bit my tongue. He said, I'll give you a warning. And then I got home, and I thought to myself, who gives him the right? I thought the sheriffs were ones who dealt with the authority and issues that had to do with Jails. What's he doing pulling me over? Doesn't he have anything else better to do? I mean, I was just determined to think, this guy's in the wrong. What's going on? Maybe you've been in that situation. Many of us don't find it pleasant to have someone having authority over you. And obviously, those who were perceived to be those who were the authority figures, they didn't think lightly about anyone challenging their authority. Many of us have a strong, natural propensity to do as we please. That's the way we're wired. And we claim the authority that we ought to have over our own lives, that we want to be self-governed. We claim, look, I have certain rights that are mine, inalienable rights, right? I can do whatever I want pertaining to me and my life. And this outlook, of course, that no one has the right to tell me what to do, or that I must not do something that I'm doing, comes and spills over into the realm of morality and spirituality. And so we say, well, I can worship God in any way I choose. And I know what's best for me. And due to the prevalence of what we now are breathing and what we drink in in this culture in which we live, in which relativism is, is everywhere, that there is no absolute authority. That everything is relative. People now have come to the conclusion, there's no problem with placing myself as the arbiter of what's right and wrong. And it seems to me as we come to this text, we've got to sort of put ourselves in a situation. We probably would have reacted similarly to people who claim that they have greater authority to those of us who think we know what we're doing and we think, think it's fairly justifiable in our minds. But notice how this unfolds further. Secondly, we notice that there's a wise defense of Jesus' authority. He reveals, he has a revealing counter question that's fascinating here. Jesus' response, interestingly enough, helps us gain another glimpse of his profound and immeasurable wisdom. I think that Jesus is practicing Proverbs 26 4. Rather than stepping into this situation simply answering the question and therefore causing tremendous conflagration probably at that moment, he's following the Proverbs 26, 4, which says, Do not answer a fool, which we would understand as a person who rejects his truth, a person who doesn't want, who's stubborn, doesn't want to listen to anybody, thinks they know they're right all the time. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. So as Jesus had done on a number of occasions, he answered the question with a question. Now, his purpose here is not to be evasive. That's not the point. He seeks now at this moment to try to have his opponents come to the point where they reveal what their real assumptions are regarding Jesus and his ministry. And they also, he did it in such a way that he's asking them now to reveal, what is your view of you as religious leaders toward the ministry of John the Baptist? John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, whose ministry had, had been tremendously, widely impacting. There have been years and years and years and years of silence. No prophetic voice. Hundreds of years. And here comes, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is saying, I am the forerunner. I'm the one who's blazing the trail for the Messiah. He's coming. And he introduces Jesus and affirms Jesus as the divinely sanctioned, role of saying, here is the one who is the anointed one from God. Clearly not a very popular message with the current spiritual leadership there in in Jerusalem. And so the question is, was John's baptism, that is, was John's ministry authorized by God or was his ministry and authority conferred upon him by those who had high positions of spiritual oversight? Now, if they answer the question as religious leaders, and they affirm that John the Baptist's ministry was authorized by God, they got some big problems. At that point, they'd have to then say, they'd have to concur with everything that John the Baptist taught, and they'd have to say, well, when John the Baptist taught that Jesus was the Messiah, who possessed supreme authority as the one sent from God, they'd have to say, you know, he's right. We defer to you, Jesus. Jesus. So they couldn't go that direction. If they affirmed that John the Baptist's ministry was not legitimate, that is, not sanctioned by God, then they'd have to face the strong negative reaction of what? All the peoples who still revered him. Because John, by the way, now had died as a martyr. And so people were thinking, man, he was was a true prophet. So there was large numbers of people who would turn against these religious leaders. And so what did they do? Well, they said, we're not going to answer. We have no answer for you. Now, by refusing to answer and taking a position that may not have been popular or not dealing with the tremendous evidence around them, what happened at this moment was their silence revealed the shallowness of their own spiritual authority. These people were phony baloney. These people had lacked any kind of integrity under this desire to hang on to their authority and their power. And they put their heads in the sand and they acknowledged, we are people who really are hypocritical at best. We're not going to give you an answer. When they should have had an answer for anything along those lines. Now that's such a contrast to the silence that they're giving Jesus and refusal to deal with things which indicates a lack of integrity in them with what the tremendous evidence that had been laid out for three years regarding Jesus and his integrity and the evidence, the overwhelming evidence of his supreme authority. I want to give hold on to your seat belts, put your seat belts on. We're going to go quickly through a brief overview of the evidence provided of Jesus' supreme authority over every realm of life. The, the, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the members of the Sanhedrin they, they, they knew all these things. Jesus had demonstrated on numbers of occasions his authority over the forces of nature. He's telling the wind to be still. He's, he's creating food out of, out of little tiny scraps of food. And he also even overwhelmed, he also showed his authority even over the realm of death, calling people who are dead to life. And those who heard Jesus noted that he taught, Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, he taught as one who had what? Authority. They saw how he taught. And it impressed them. It is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said, You have heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, clearly indicating I am speaking with authority that's beyond what you've ever been heard, what you've ever been taught. Jesus made indirect and direct claims to having divine authority. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive sins. That's equal to saying, I am God, I could forgive sin. Also, we know in John chapter 5, verse 27, and also in the, in the high priestly prayer, which he's about to pray, in just a short days away from this incident here in Matthew, he prays and says, Father, you gave your Son authority over all mankind. It's clear that he has made that affirmation and demonstrated And added to those claims are many other people who now testify to Jesus' divine authority. The soldiers of the Sanhedrin reacted to Jesus' teaching in John chapter 7 by saying this. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Never. He clearly speaks with with a unique sense of authority. The evil spirits recognize Jesus' authority, and they begged Him. They begged Him. The one who had authority, they begged Him to not cast them into the abyss. Luke 8. And never had the members of the Sanhedrin or the high priest ever heard a voice from heaven that testified to their divine approval the way Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration, which the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17 says what? Listen to him. Never did they have a divine voice from heaven affirming that for those who were in the spiritual leadership in the Sanhedrin. The ultimate demonstration, of course, of Jesus' approval and His authority took place when God raised Him from the dead. In the triumphant victor over the forces of darkness and the curse of sin, Jesus then said at the end of Matthew verse 20, chapter 28, He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then He gives commands. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Commanding them to do what? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That, my friend, is the statement of one who has absolute authority. Teach them to observe everything I commanded. If I said that, I want everybody to do what I'm commanding them to do and teach it to everybody around the world, what a position of arrogance. But this is Jesus whose authority clearly is unique. He triumphed even over death and sin, and Satan. With this bold statement, Jesus claimed absolute sovereign power over everyone and everything. And Jesus demands compliance with His commands because He is the ultimate and final authority. What was His name given to Him so many times in the book of Revelation? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the letter A. He's the letter Z. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the source of all things. He's the end of all things. He is Lord, He is Master, He is King over all. And there is no human authority that's ever conferred upon Him the right to rule over others. As the exalted, risen, sovereign Lord of all, Ephesians 121 summarizes Jesus in this way. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus has what? He has authentic, legitimate, universal authority. And it's clear for anybody who wants to see it. It's there. The evidence is plentiful, abundant, convincing. The problem is they didn't want to see it. They refused to see it. They put their heads down in the sand and they chose to defy the obvious authority of Christ. I want us to consider now the third point of this message, point number three, the implications of Jesus' authority. Silencing all other claims to authority. Jesus did not provide an answer to these religious leaders, even though they had sought one. Knowing his his opponents were not seeking answers for him, they were not seeking answers for him, because they respected him or because they really wanted to understand what motivated him or to understand more about who he really was. But notice that Jesus extended to them, nonetheless, he extended to them momentary mercy on those who denied his authority, on those who defied his authority. I find it fascinating that this text follows after the one previous regarding last week's message on the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus, at that moment in which this occurred, could have said at that moment he could have offered words of condemnation to those who had defied and were denying his authority, questioning his authority, trying to cause him to be somehow scandalized and and to um, ruin him. But here Jesus is demonstrating patience and long-suffering to those who were scheming to destroy Him. The one who had absolute power and authority was showing such restraint in His willingness to extend mercy to them. But my friend, I want you to know that's not going to be His response indefinitely. It was not good at that time, and it will not be forever. One day Jesus will have everyone bend their knee, the Bible says, Everyone is going to confess, Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. He is Lord, He is Master and King over all. And every person will assume a position of deference to Christ. And they will have to assume a position of respect before Christ as the King of kings who occupies the highest seat of authority and glory and power and greatness. And there will be no exceptions And on that day, everyone will be brought into subjection under Jesus' rule and his reign. And one day, everyone will yield to his absolute will. And one day, his supreme authority will be universally acknowledged. And those religious leaders who opposed him and put him to death, and they continued in their attempts, even after they had him destroyed, putting him on that cross, they continued their opposition to anything that had to do with him. As we read about in the book of Acts, they put, together, put to death those early Christians proclaiming that Jesus was Lord. But, at, but their attempts to sort of hold on to their positions of human authority was short-lived. didn't last. They were on a tragic collision course with the supreme ruler of the universe. And everyone one day, everyone one day, will yield to Jesus, the supreme one who has authority over all. Everyone will yield to him. Everyone will surrender to his power and his authority. Max Licato tells the illustration of this principle about yielding to the one who is supreme and greater. He tells about two battleships that had been assigned to a training squadron. And they've been out at sea for a number of Days now, and they've been doing various maneuvers. These two battleships, as a part of a larger group, and uh, the weather has been rather difficult and heavy, um, uh, heavy fog. And so, the man who is serving in the lead battleship, he's on the watch of the bridge as night falls, and the visibility was poor with the fog moving in. The captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities going on there. And shortly after dark, the lookout on that first battleship said light bearing on the starboard now starboard bow sorry and so the captain asked the question is it steady or is it moving astern that is is it turning away from us or is it moving right is it still pointing right at us and the lookout replied steady captain it's just right there facing them and the lookout when he said that everybody knew one thing it meant that there was a dangerous collision course about to occur with his other ship. So the captain then calls to the signal line. He says, signal that ship and send this message at once. We are on a collision course. Advise, you must change course 20 degrees. In other words, you've got to move to this direction to avoid hitting us. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. Captain's getting really irritated at this. He says, Send this message. I am a captain. Change course 20 degrees. Reply came back I'm a seaman, second class. You change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain of the ship is furious and he shouts and says, This sends this message. I'm a battleship change course 20 degrees sends the message it comes back i'm a lighthouse the battleship change course makes the point right some of us we look at the issue of authority and we have a tendency to want to push against what logically and realistically is facing us. There is one who has absolute authority, and we keep resisting it. We have a tendency to do that. I want you to turn your attention real quickly here to, to this one thought in Matthew chapter 11. Just back up a few pages in your Bible. Page 1,155. If you think about the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus' authority, if you push it to its greatest extent it will overwhelm you you will say how can i and how would i want to serve someone who has absolute authority that person will crush me because we all know deep down we have not submitted ourselves to his authority we all know that we've defied him numerous times and we continue to do so and our hearts resist the idea of surrendering to the lord of the universe Would you look at this text very quickly here. Verse 28, Matthew 11. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My load is light. There is so much packed into these words that are so helpful for us. If you'll notice what Jesus is saying here, He says, listen, bring your rebellious heart, bring your proud, defiant, willful spirit, and come to Me. I am the Savior of sinners. Yes, you have much to account for because you have been defiant, because you have been rebellious, and because you continually want to be the person who assumes the throne. You want to be the king over all. We all do. And Jesus says, you can cast that aside. Come to me. I'm the one who died for you. I'm the one who who gave myself to, to, to help you understand that there's hope for people who have defied me and who have now incurred my wrath and who have broken all the laws. He says, I kept the laws for you. Just like Nick in his prayer was saying today. Jesus says, I am the righteous one. I'll come and forgive you. Come to me, he says. For all those wannabe kings, here's someone who will save you. What tenderness is Christ, who has absolute authority, who could immediately just give words of condemnation and send us all to the kind of judgment we deserve. And yet he says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You say, why should I come to him? Look how Jesus describes himself. Even though he's the one who is the, the Lord of all, he says, I am the one who is what, gentle and humble in heart. Jesus says, I will never abuse my authority. Every person that we've ever known as an authority figure has always at some point misused their authority. Someone has become abusive, someone has taken advantage of somebody in their weakness. Somebody everybody there's there's all forms of corruption of authority all around us. But Jesus never has ever and nor will he ever abuse his authority. He will never come to those who are saying, "I am weak, I am desperate, I need help." He will not crush them. He extends them mercy. That's why he calls them, come, believe upon me. Receive me, he says. Repent of your sins and come and find life in me. I have found it fascinating to reflect upon this text and ask myself, is it possible that someone who was a Pharisee, who, had, who relished all the authority and all the acclaim that they one time had, that they actually abandoned that and said, that's the worst thing in the world, I don't want it, it, it means to me nothing, but knowing Christ is more important than all. It's, it's Saul. Saul, who was a Pharisee, headed his way to Damascus. And what is he doing? He is trying his best to exert authority over people who are out of control. He is making sure they get arrested and killed and, and rounded up and put in prison. Anybody, anybody who's the follower of Jesus. And what happens? G, uh, Saul comes face-to-face in an encounter with the risen Christ who speaks from him from heaven and says, Saul, Saul. By the way, if you ever hear someone repeating a name in Scripture... You better stop and listen. Uh, it's not a good sign. Uh, it's like when your mother said your name and your middle name. You know, Mark Bishop. You better, you better listen up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He now comes face to face with the authority and supreme one over all. It is through that encounter, it brings him to his knees. He can't see anything for a while till finally the Lord opens his eyes and sees the glories of Christ. He realizes all this baloney stuff I've been pursuing, trying to gain my own authority and be superior over to others. He said, that means nothing to me. But what I treasure is knowing Christ. The one who has authority over all, who's given me mercy, who's given me grace, who has rescued me from all of my rebelliousness and all of my defiance. He has paid for all that and now He wants me as His child. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The yoke means what? When you put a yoke on an oxen, that the oxen says, I am now yielding myself to be a servant of wherever you, teach, wherever you lead me, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to pull. I'm going to go wherever you lead me now because I'm now being in your service. I yield to you. I submit to you. And that's the call we all face when we come to Christ. The Christ who died for us says, Come. Put the yoke around your neck. Come and take my ways upon yourself. Come and yield yourself to doing what I'm asking you to do. Give up whatever I'm asking you to give up. Pursue whatever I'm asking you to pursue. Why? Because I loved you enough that I gave myself for you to rescue you and to give you real life in me. Submission to Christ brings liberation. We become freed to become what God created us to be. Come to Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the greatest authority over all. You will never be able to outrun Him. You'll never be able to out-trick out, uh, Him. You'll never be able to escape Him. Like the lighthouse, yield to His authority and submit and surrender to Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you you know our hearts today, Lord. You know that we are, as a people, very inclined to having our own way. We do it naturally. We do it automatically. We do it defiantly. We do it shamefully. We do it as a regular pattern of our dealing with life. We don't like anybody stepping on our toes, telling us what to do, calling us to give up what we think is our rightful privilege to have our own way. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you saw through all of that phony uh, elevation of ourselves into thinking we're somebody big and important when we're merely a creature that you've made. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious toward us, that like those Religious leaders, you could have condemned us a long time ago, but you've shown to us mercy and grace. Help us, Father, to see the cross as the most amazing event of human history that the one who had absolute authority, who could have condemned everybody there to eternal punishment, submitted himself to be treated with mocking, scorn, hatred, and to allow himself to be crucified on that cross. Lord, help us to see the love that brought that about, that yielded himself for us. Help us to see, Lord, that his authority is the great authority, the perfect authority, the, the sinless authority, authority that we can trust and fully yield to. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, in our own struggles, wherever we are, Lord, For some people, it's the first time they've never really said, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to turn from sin and I'm ready to come and receive Christ and claim Him as the one I'm trusting to rescue me and to save me from my sin and to give me new life. Lord, may this be the day that they take that first step and surrender to that, which is the undeniable reality out in front of them. And for many of us, Lord, who have already crossed that Lion, I pray that you would help us to surrender to you. Whatever we're trying to hold on to today, Lord, whatever it is you've been trying to get us to take up and do that we refuse to do, help us, Lord, to surrender to you today. You are King and Lord and Master. Help us to live in the reality of that. With a, with a heart that says we do so because we are amazed by you. We're awed. We're in awe of you. And we deeply respect you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.